0: Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolfe, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You've tuned into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Alexandra Stain about brainwashing. What was it that inspired you to study brainwashing?
1: Well, it was my own experience. I mean, you know, I was an independent feminist. Um, I didn't really call myself a feminist. I felt it was unnecessary. It was so obvious to me. (laughs) <laughs> that's what i that was what i was you know i didn't need naming uh-huh. you know political active uh critical thinker you know i taught study groups at a young age you know kind of marxist study groups i was you know i was always naturally a bit of a scholar um even though i left school at 15 but i think partly i left school at 15 because i hated school so much because i in a funny, odd way, because I was such a scholar and I found school unbearably dull. Um, (laughs) So I was this kind of slightly odd self-taught person, um, but very thoughtful and already trying to be a writer. Wasn't published, but, you know, I was a natural writer and a natural activist because of my family background and my culture um so i anyway i got into this group had this fairly dreadful experience got out 10 years later and just was like wow how on earth did that happen to me i am not someone who generally speaking subordinates myself to others and after i wrote my memoir inside out i just couldn't it was like an itch i had to scratch you know i couldn't rest until I understood what that process had been. And I had felt that disabling of my critical thinking and I had felt my critical thinking come back in a funny way in one fell swoop at the moment where a fellow cult member in the group confided in me and suddenly all my doubts about the group that had been sort of suppressed into the so speak back of my brain came flooding out and I it was a kind of extraordinary moment and I needed to understand how had that happened and you know being the naturally scholarly and curious person that I am you know I just started reading everything I could and eventually went to university um yeah there was something else I wanted to say, but my mind's kind of blank um, and oh, oh I know well and also I very clearly understood the political ramifications that this was relevant to what had happened in mao 's China and in North Korea and in stalin's and now putin's russia um, and in various political groups and, of course, in religious groups. And so it was a way to also to channel my cultural, social justice um, energy into something that I that I had also experienced. And also, I could see that there needed to be more scholarship about it, That though there has been really good scholarship. A lot of that had been forgotten over the years. I mean, there was marvelous work. I mean, Hannah Arendt, who's my hero, completely understands this stuff. And when I read Origins of Totalitarianism, I was just absolutely blown away by how totally she understood this. Um, so I could see how it had, it wasn't just about this little tiny cult I was in. It was had broad social implications, which I think, we see very clearly in the world right now it's not a hard connection to make Um, and anyway I've been doing it ever since (laughs) I keep wanting to go back to do some creative writing but there's still such a lack of scholarship and resources and experts in this area that I kind of keep doing it although I have to say that we are getting more and more young people coming into the field which is wonderful um, especially people who grew up in these cults, so they weren't recruited, they just had the misfortune to be born into one um, and that's an important story that still needs to be told a lot more.
0: oh it certainly it certainly does. I mean they must have a very strong mindset to to actually figure out what's going on and and escape from it. Could you explain about? what a cult is and how it works?
1: Headed by a charismatic and authoritarian figure and in which, well, the isolation is both social, psychological, not necessarily physical, um, but certainly sort of informational isolation and so forth. And it's a process that alternates this kind of feeling that the group or the leader... Is all, all good and all the goodness in the world, and in fact the only goodness in the world. With a consistent um, fear arousal through fear messages, through punishments, through threats. So you get, as the title of my book, this alternation of terror and love. So that's the process. That kind. That alternation of those two things, which is a very confusing human dynamic because it's a very unpredictable thing. You don't know, you know, when you wake up in the morning, which you're going to get. But within this closed, isolating social system where one person basically has the control, one person or a leadership group has total control. So that's um, a few more words than a brief definition, but hopefully that gives an idea. And the result, importantly, the result of that process of brainwashing is that you create followers who are unable to advocate for their own survival needs and instead will do what they're told by the leadership. So we see these, you know, rather uh, peculiar and hard-to-understand acts of people um For instance, recently, the cult in Kenya, where people were starving themselves to death, but it 's a complicated thing. you know what it looks like at first sight like is it 's more complicated, and one has to try to un- dig a bit deeper to understand the imprisonment of people that leads to that behavior
0: Wow, yeah, no i hadn 't heard of that one. Are there warning signs? Uh, when somebody's first being brainwashed?
1: Often there are, but they're not always easy to spot. But I'd say, you know, typically the first thing is someone's going to get recruited, often by friends or family. Um, and and the first thing would be often a kind of, oh, I found the greatest thing on earth. You know, this is... a um, incredible group you know they're just helping me so much They or a person you know oh you know he loves me so much because brainwashing in many ways is parallel to controlling domestic relationships it's just that in you know in a group it's happening in a group as opposed to on a one-on-one level but anyway so you can get this kind of over enthusiastic stage at the beginning. But then you might not always see that because some groups like the one I was in um, established rules of secrecy very early on. So I I mean, no one really knew what had happened to me because I just quickly was told not to tell anyone because this was such important revolutionary work. You know, it had to be secret. Um, But often you will hear people get very enthusiastic about whatever it is. And then they're going to start to pull away from anyone, their their friends and family, who isn't joining in that enthusiasm or contributing in some way. So basically you start to see the person get isolated from their, their prior social network. And that's really the biggest warning sign. If someone you're close to, you know, just isn't available to you anymore in the same way, Uh, is constantly off to meetings, you know, because these groups, you know, I have my kind of shortest um, formula about how it works is it's isolation of the person engulfment in this supposedly benevolent group or place combined with these fear messages. So it's isolation engulfment plus fear really is the essence of the process. So what outsiders are going to see is often the isolation and the engulfment. Um, you know, suddenly someone's going to this yoga class, you know, 10 times a week and volunteering all weekend. You know, that's a worry um, because if they're doing all that, they're not anymore coming to visit you for a, a t- cup of tea or a pint or they're not going to their, you know, tennis games or whatever else they might be doing. Um, so they start pruning away all their other activities, and that 's not healthy
0: no, so it's it 's like something that's all consuming.
1: yeah, and you know pe you know we've all had friends probably who suddenly really get into something, you know, and that 's all they want to talk about and often that 's just a passing thing, but if it kind of isn't a passing thing and they kind of really can't listen to anything else, that's troublesome. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it certainly is. And, look, does brainwashing affect a certain personality type?
1: I don't think we have good evidence for that. I mean, there's some scholars, and, I, I mean, there may be some truth to this, think that, You know, often it's idealistic people. And, you know, certainly I was when I was young. I probably still am in a way. You know, people who want to change the world in some way or really, you know, improve themselves. Because a lot of these groups, that's what they're claiming to offer. Um, But I think we have to be careful about looking at that because... I don't think that's always what it is. Um, But on the other hand, cults do want to recruit people who are capable, intelligent, or who have resources of some kind. They're not looking for people that they can't control. So they don't want kind of other psychopaths. You know, cults are pretty much led by psychopaths. Um, because they can't control them. They don't necessarily want sadists because they can't control them. You know, so they want kind of sensible, productive people. Um, so I suppose you could say that. You know, they don't necessarily want ill people, for instance, because they don't want to take care of anyone. Unless that ill person has a lot of money, then that might be useful to them. Um, but I think most of us, given the right come on, the right appeal can be susceptible unless we are educated about what are the warning signs of an unhealthy or dangerous relationship or group. And that's kind of been the heart of my work in a way, is to try to educate about those warning signs, which again, are largely a group that tries to say they've got the answer to everything. You don't need anything else and a group that tries to cut you off from people and very importantly a group that tries to control your personal relationships and i think that often doesn't get talked enough about but cults really do that because they don't want you to have any alternate close relationships they want all your emotional and other kinds of energy to go towards the cult and it also threatens the cult if you have a close relationship because you might in that close relationship decide to talk about your doubts. And that can break the control mechanism because part of the brainwashing is to, the process disables your critical thinking through isolation and fear. And so if you find a safe relationship where you can kind of nudge the other person and say, hmm, I think there's a bit of a problem in this group, that threatens that um, lock, that kind of emotional and cognitive lock that the group has. So they, cults universally really, try to prevent those alternate close relationships. And they do that in a multitude of ways, depending on the cult. Um, They might have arranged relationships. They might break up relationships. They might enforce celibacy or they might enforce polygamy anything that sort of interferes with a close one-on-one relationship and they're also going to control relationships with one's parents and with one's children so we see control of reproduction in cults you either are forbidden to have children or you or contraception is forbidden or you have to wait for permission from the leader to have children etc etc but You no longer have agency over your reproductive choices. And that's um, pretty universal, I would say. And again, it depends on the cult, how they're going to implement that. And that itself depends on the predilections of the leader. Um, But we constantly see that so i 've forgotten what your initial question was
0: <laughs> our personality type, but so the next question is how does the combined dynamic of terror and love work to break down people 's abilities to think and behave rationally
1: Yes that's such an interesting question <laughs> um, because that also has been the heart of my work now. How to explain that um, carefully on radio (laughs) um so we are evolutionarily uh we've evolved to seek close attachments with others in order to find protection and that really has happened initially with parents and children they have children didn't have a close connection to their parents and they just wandered off, never came back, they wouldn't survive very long. So John Bowlby did marvellous work showing this as an evolved characteristic, this need to attach to others. And that carries on throughout life. And there's various forms of attachment and there's quite a lot of talk about this in the media right now. But the one that I think is happening in cults and in any kind of coercive relationship is called disorganized attachment. And that's where the supposedly safe person that one is attaching to is actually the source of danger or fear. And that's maladaptive because normally in a more secure relationship, if you have a stress of some kind, you're going to go seek your loved one to get some comfort. And that's all happening at a biochemical level. When you're stressed, your cortisols go up. When you go to your loved one or even if you think about your loved one to sort of self-soothe, your endogenous opioids, your internal opioids go up, which brings your cortisols down. And that's calming. So and then when you've had enough calming, you go back out into the world. To get some more cortisols because cortisols aren't all bad we need some excitement in life you know if we go skiing we're getting cortisols right but you want to have a balance between stress and comfort stress and comfort but if the stress is coming from what we call the safe haven that supposedly safe person you're, you're not really getting those endogenous opioids, or so you're not getting them enough. You're not getting what we call satiation of, of those so that your cortisol's really come down. So, that, so it's a little bit hard to explain this part, especially without visuals, with my nice diagrams, but you can see them in my book. Um, so you try to approach comfort to get away from fear, In approaching comfort, you're going closer to the fear. And that's like a paradox, an unsolvable paradox, because you're getting more fear stimulus instead of comfort. And we call that being, if you're isolated, so you have nowhere else to seek comfort, we call that fright without solution in the attachment theory world. Now, if you had another close attachment figure, that wouldn't work so well because if you went towards Supposedly, safe person A, and they were frightening you, you could go off to the actual safe person B and get comfort. But if you're isolated in this kind of closed system with person A, you have no other option. So you kind of keep seeking comfort from them in this, and you get this kind of feedback loop, kind of negative feedback loop, really, where instead of getting comfort, you're getting fear. But you think and you're being told and everyone around you is telling you that it should be comfort and it should feel like comfort so what happens is there's a emotional and cognitive effect of that dynamic emotionally you get kind of stuck in that relationship first because you have nowhere else to go because you've been isolated second because you're kind of gluing on trying to get some relief from the stress through the comfort that is not readily available so you're emotionally kind of bonded so we could call that a trauma bond or a disorganized attachment bond when you're in that bond because it's maladaptive it doesn't help you it's traumatic it's what i call a chronic relational trauma so you're chronically in this fear state that you can't resolve what we know about trauma from neuroscientists is that you can't think about what you're feeling You dissociate in other words so that link in our brains between our perceptions and our sensory perceptions and our feelings and our ability to think about them and make judgments about what to do that gets broken when you're in trauma so you're kind of stuck in this feeling state that you can't even name because your higher order thinking, your your language abilities to uh, articulate what you're feeling are kind of cut off by the trauma. So that's the cognitive effect. So the emotional effect is you're in this trauma bond that you can't easily get out of. The cognitive effect is that you can't think about what you're experiencing in that relationship. You might be able to think about things outside of that group or the relationship, but you can't think about the relationship because it's too frightening to think. You can't even access that because it's you're in a state of trauma. That's, it's hard to explain, but I hope that gives a bit of a sense. So this is where you see people both not being able to get out and, you know, we always say, why didn't they leave? Well, that's, you know, they couldn't leave. They were glued into this thing. They've been cut off from any other supports. And then cognitively, you know, when we say to people in cults, you know, why are they so stupid? Well, in a way they are because their critical thinking has been disabled and they may have been critical thinkers before. And when they get out, they may become critical thinkers again, about that relationship. But when they're in the fear, they physiologically can't access that kind of critical thinking. So that's that dynamic. And that's why it's terror and love because you have to persuade and show people that this is a safe place, which is a lie because it's not a safe place. So you get really the love should be in quotes. You know, I love you, quote unquote, but basically I'm terrifying you. So that that dynamic. And again, people listening, you know, I hope can see the parallels to controlling domestic violence because it's psychologically the same process.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's very very important to always think critically. Now, do you do you think that everybody is a little bit brainwashed, and because the way that a lot of people just blindly follow the religion they've been indoctrinated into, and they vote for the same political party as the rest of their family?
1: Um, no, in a <laughs> word, I think that's. I think they're different processes. I think there's, well, there's one uh, scholar. Oh, I'm going to forget his name. I think Peter Berger, he was a sociologist in 60s and 70s, I think, maybe a bit earlier. He talked about socialization and re-socialization. And I think that might be a helpful way to address this. So we have sort of what we couldn't consider primary so- socialization that, you know, happens in a more or less normal family, let's say. You know, you have a culture. We all have a culture. We can't escape that. That's part of human life. And that, those cultures take various forms, and we grow, grow up with those cultures. You know, I grew up in a political, anti-apartheid, communist, <laughs> bohemian culture. That was, you know, that, my culture. Other people grow up in a, you know, more strict Christian or whatever culture. So that doesn't mean you can't think critically and unless you're in a totalitarian state or a totalitarian religion, say, you are exposed to and you may have friends in different cultures and be reading things of different cultures and watching televisions and listening to podcasts and (laughs) you know you're getting a lot of other inputs and in a cult you're not or in a totalitarian state you're not so re-social so that's sort of primary socialization that we all have and there's no way to have a society where that's not happening um but re-socialization is a kind of uh, wrenching someone out of that and not in a good way. And again, putting them into a, a unitary, isolated system where they have no agency and no, little ability to think about that situation. I mean, another scholar who I found helpful in thinking about this was Jürgen Habermas, and also a woman, oh, I can never remember her name, Paxton maybe, who did some really, if anyone's interested, I can always send references. Um, just find me on my webpage, alexandrastain.com. Um But, you know, the, one way of thinking about this, and I think also people like Eric Fromm talk about this and um, undoubtedly others, that in... Non pre modern times in medieval times, where people lived in the same place their whole lives, around the same people their whole lives. In a way, that kind of looks like the same structure as a cult. It was the, you know, people there wasn't a lot of pluralism going on, right? You know, there were these kind of single systems. But in a way, I mean, though there was oppression in those times, it was sort of adaptive, it was sort of functional. But in modern times, where we live, you know, in these incredibly complicated and marvellously complicated and multicultural lives, to wrench people out of that pluralism and multiculturalism and whatever words you want to use to describe it and pull them into a kind of closed kind of medieval looking system is really not adaptive for those people you know what it ends up is is they become what we call deployable agents where they just do what they're told without thinking about their own survival needs and you know we'll notice most cults and totalitarian systems don't survive you know they survive for a few generations at most it's it's not an adaptive form in the modern world culture is not cult <laughs> and I think you know that's that's the way that's a summary of I guess what i wanna say
0: <laughs> oh it certainly it certainly does I mean they must have a very strong mindset to to actually figure out what's going on and an escape from it. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today.
1: Well, thank you. I hope um, it was of interest.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And what was the name of your book?
1: So my first book, which is sort of reads a bit like a thriller, is my personal experience, my memoir. It's called Inside Out. The second book is a sort of more theoretical, but very readable, because I've tried hard to make it readable, more theoretical view of how these things work, and that's called Terra Love and Brainwashing. And they're both available generally.
0: Great. And I've been speaking with Dr. Alexandra Stain about brainwashing. Well, that's all we have time for. Hope you've enjoyed the program.